Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling, and I am pleased to welcome you this week for part two of Optimizing Cash Income. We had a great session last week. We got through four, three and a half of the five big levers that you can use to optimize cash income. This is what we do in terms of how we manage that portion of the return profile that our clients experience. Today, we're going to continue the conversation around optimizing rent. And we're going to talk about the number one lever in our eyes, as well as some thoughts about how this is optimized long term. And so with that, let's dive in and get started. Last week, we talked about, uh, just a brief summary, we talked about ways that you could optimize cash income, which effectively means optimizing net operating income. The difference between net operating income and cash income, most of that is going to be the debt service. There may be a few other expenses in there, but most of it's going to be the debt service. And we're not spending time talking about leverage uh, in this, uh, these two episodes. Uh, that's a separate conversation, and leverage is what would drive, uh, by the way, debt leverage is what I mean. Debt leverage is what would drive uh, that delta between net operating income and cash income. So we're really talking about how to optimize net operating income. We addressed very briefly that utilities are a huge line item in operating expense, and they're not going to have a lot of leverage when it comes to moving uh, cash income because you're billing those back. And if you're billing those back, then there's not really much in the way of an upside. You certainly want to try and reduce them. That's simply being good stewards of the environment, but it's not going to move the, the needle much. Property taxes, big line item. A little more challenging to move, not something you can really, quote unquote, make money on, but you can definitely keep yourself from losing money. So that's a good one to look at. Uh, next, item number four as we work up the list was the cost of management and salaries and wages, which really when you look at all of these other items, if you're doing these other items well, then you'll be more efficient, which helps optimize that line, uh, which is a, a, another uh, wonderful opportunity. Number three on the list is other income, optimizing the other income. One, making sure that all the other income that you are due, you're collecting. We have lots of different other income lines at our properties. And one of the focuses needs to be simply making sure that we're actually uh, billing for and collecting the other income that we are appropriately due. And then there's additional other income items that you might come up with. So, um, so you've got those items. And then we get to the rent item, which we've kind of bundled together in this net rent thought. And that really is a combination of uh, vacancy, so physical vacancy concessions and bad debt, and rent, and that's about what we're getting ready to talk about. If you have questions about any of the material we're going over today, uh, one, I encourage you go back and listen to last week's. You can listen to today and then go back and listen to last week's session so you'll get the two uh, uh, paired up. Feel free to shoot me an email, pat at marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. Feel free to stop by the website, marapoling.com. Got lots of great material there in the Learning Center. There's some good downloads of uh, uh, past webinars that you can uh, that you can uh, that you can watch recordings of. And again, if you have questions, feel free to shoot me an email. So 
let's talk about uh, optimizing rent. And the reason we've got this bundled with the vacancy piece and, and you know, kind of through this ham-handed term together, if you will, of net rent is um, all of this is art. We talked about that just a little bit last week. There's, there's not a great deal of science to this. Yes, there's a lot of data that you can bring to bear. And we mentioned there are systems that will help you optimize this. Ultimately though, there's a, a push and pull between rents and physical occupancy concessions and yes, bad debt. So if we push really hard on rents and we say, you know what, we, uh, we've made it to market. We're now on parity with everybody else. Everybody's getting a dollar a square foot. We're getting a dollar a square foot. Uh, we're where we want to be when it comes to uh, rents, but we want to be at a dollar 10 and we're just going to go to a dollar 10. We're just going to charge more in rent and that's how we're going to make our money. And, uh, and there are, investments out there that have that kind of a strategy where they're going to go get premium rents. Uh, that's not the strategy we employ. We actually don't even try to get to, uh, or at least don't underwrite getting all the way to market. We'll try to get to market, but we're going to underwrite something shy of market um, so that we're a little conservative there. That's just part of the way we would go about it. So if you did push beyond the market, well, what would happen? Well, the tenants that might move in are going to begin looking at your property and they're going to look at other potential properties. And if there's a significant Delta without any value proposition that goes with it, right? So if you're going to charge 10% more than everybody else, you've got to have some reason why people want to do that. You're in an ideal location. You've got amenities that other don't offer your, um, uh, your your units have garages and others don't have garages. Uh, uh, you have um, your property's brand new or you have extremely high-end class A kinds of amenities, which once you get out of class, that comparison kind of falls apart, right? So we're talking class to class, class B to class B, for example. So it can be kind of difficult to do that. So you're going to have some tenants that aren't going to move in, that aren't going to look at your property because it's simply going to be too expensive. So that's going to affect your physical vacancy. And by the way, it'll affect it on renewals too, right? Because when people come up for a renewal and you tell them they have to pay 10% more and they look around and it's like, well, gosh, if I've got to pay an extra hundred bucks, I can go rent a van and move for less than a couple hundred bucks that's well worth me doing and then they'll move out and your so your renewal rates are going to drop not to 50% but they might drop all the way down to 10% or even or even less so you'll see physical vacancy increase <clears throat> so that's one of the things that could happen concessions could go up now the reasons concessions are going to go up is great that you raise your rent but then when you panic because you don't have the occupancy you'd like now you start throwing discounts at people, which we kind of look at as if you're going to have a consistent concession program, then you really should just reevaluate what the rents are that you're charging uh, and modify them. Um, appropriate concessions would be things like uh, you want to smooth out some seasonality in your in your plan. Um, so you're going to incent some activity during certain times of the year. Um, you might have simply a short-term spike in uh, physical vacancy, right? You might just have all of a sudden, uh, not just planned, right? So leases that expire and people that didn't renew, 
but you could have some uh, some skips or some evictions, and all of a sudden you've got an extra six units. Well, you could run a small concession to get those taken care of fairly quickly. But if you're consistently offering significant concessions to get you the units leased, then you're really not getting the rent that you think you're getting, which is why all of this nets out against rent to give you what the real number is that you're actually getting. Bad debt falls into that exact same category, right? So if you get somebody that says, oh, this is wonderful, I will absolutely move in. And somehow they they pass your screen, right? They, they demonstrate that they have three times income, uh, pardon me, three times uh, rent in terms of their income and a number of other factors, and they move in. And then they just up and leave in the middle of the night or they lose that job or they just decide to stop paying. They still have that nice job, but they just decide to stop paying. And if you aren't on top of it, you could get yourself in a position where you've got two or three months rent owed to you, which is going to be a big impact. <clears throat> well, why would that be more likely when the rents are higher? Well, if someone moves in and ultimately feels like, you know, I'm not really getting a fair deal here. It's cheaper somewhere else. <clears throat> they go and get themselves set up somewhere else while they're still here with you, while they don't have an eviction, and then they move out and leave you holding the bag. Uh, it, it has happened. So all of those are factors to keep in mind that would uh, show up as vacancy, but what they really are is a function of the fact that you're being too aggressive on rents. All right, so that's the too aggressive side of rents. What's the too passive side of rent, right? Because you want to really be optimizing it. So this is, again, this is all kind of art. You can sit and do comp studies. We do them, right, to figure out what's the delta to the market. Uh, you can look at what the market average rent movement is. We do that. Uh, in most of the markets we're in, it's anywhere from... 5% down towards 3% in terms of average rent movement on an annual basis. Um, our comp differentials for classic units or unimproved units to improved units can be 10 or 15 or even 20%. So our strategies would be to make those movements over a couple of years uh, to get those movements in and taken care of and then see that three to 5% average growth thereafter. Um, that's our strategy. What happens is a function of the feedback from the market, right? So if we're doing that, and as we're doing that, we're, we're seeing 95%, 96%, 97% occupancy, physical occupancy, very low concessions, less than 1%, very low bad debt, less than 1%. If that's where we are, then those are indications that there's more room that we could be a little more aggressive and we might move in that direction. There's also a sense uh, that you, we, you need to have of what's the tipping point on renewals um, and uh, that's going to take an existing tenant and give them cause to actually go through the challenge of finding another property and moving. Um, now, this doesn't mean that you have captive tenants and you can simply move their rent this amount because they won't go look. That's not the case. If you're at market or above market and you move the rents in any meaningful way, they'll move simply because it's not that movement. It's the total delta that's there. That's what's going to drive that. But if you're moving towards that, even there, people simply can't handle 
a 20% change in their rent. They can't pay an extra $100 a month. Now, can they pay 30 a month or 50 a month or 70 a month? That's the data you've got to gather to be able to understand. But there's some number there. And ultimately, it's that it's that band. It's between that floor and that ceiling where you've got this opportunity to optimize this. It is the second biggest lever, this rent line. And the reason it is is because it's such a big number. And a 1% change, right? So instead of moving the rents on average at 4%, if you can move them at 5%, that's a big deal, right? Much more than changing any of the other items we talked about, 1%. You move other income 1%, it's, it's important. It's not as important and as impactful as moving rents. Likewise, with the cost of management and wages or property taxes or any of those, line items. They each have to move substantially more percentage-wise than rent to be equal to the same movement as rent. So if you're looking to optimize your cash income, one of the two places to look for the biggest bang for the buck is going to be this net rent number. So managing and having a rent strategy, as we do, that's going to optimize those rents while staying within an appropriate range for physical vacancy concessions and bad debt. And it's that um, integration of all of those that gives you the optimization. So now for number one, we talked about utilities, which we said not really going to drive things, taxes, management and salaries and wages, other income, this net rent number. So what is the number one lever? That certainly sounds as you go down the profit and loss statement, the NOI statement, the cash flow statement, whatever document you want to call it, but as you walk down it, that looks like we like we did it, like we took care of everything. Well, there's one more number, and it is the, the most impactful, has the greatest lever on it, and that is invested capital. Because all of this, right, when we look at optimizing cash income, yes, it's a dollar amount, but that dollar amount is a percentage return on the investment. And if I can optimize that, right, if I can increase that percentage return, then that's how I'm going to optimize uh, the cash return. And if I do that by having less capital invested, well, then that gives me capital to invest in another project and go through the same optimization, which ultimately gives me more dollar cash flow, more dollar cash income. So, how do I optimize my capital investment? I said, we're not gonna talk about debt leverage. So that's that's one of the items obviously you could use. You just say, well, we're just gonna lever up. Right? We're, just gonna, we're just gonna go in at 90% loan to value. Good for you if you've got the stomach to do that. That's not the world we live in. You know, Our going in leverage uh, is gonna be in the 60s uh, by the time you add in all the different cash that we bring to the table. Uh, and then it's going to trend uh, down from uh, from there. So, uh, and we would encourage folks, uh, especially if you're looking to make um, secure, stable, multifamily investments, that you give a lot of thought to the leverage strategy. So that's another session. That's a different conversation. So how do you optimize capital to optimize cash return other than simply changing the amount that you borrow? Well, the way to do that is one, you could pay less for the property. Ultimately, that is absolutely by far the 
biggest lever in any of any underwrite is going to be simply how much you pay. And it's quite surprising how even modest movements, uh, you know, on a $10 million property paying 10,100,000 versus paying 10 million versus paying 9,900,000. It's quite interesting how big a difference in return that movement makes, which is, you know, movement on the order of 1%. But it's, it's quite interesting how that ripples through it because that's a huge lever. So that's one thing you can do. It's also one thing you only do once, right? You only buy the property once. So once you've purchased, once you've signed the contract and then you go forward and you close, you're kind of done, right? You can't move that lever again. Capital can be managed. And here's some of the ways that you can manage that capital. One is um, when you purchase the asset, putting a really good plan together up front about what your value add is going to be, making sure that it is a realistic, reasonable plan. Uh, it is very, 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 very common to overspend on capital improvements. It's, it's one of the easiest places to uh, have your budget get out of hand. We spend a lot of time managing that part of the process because those dollars can get away from you. Uh, they're, they're different dollars than expense dollars. Uh, they can just, they, they can kind of slip through the cracks. So you really want to stay on top of what those are. And it starts by having a really good budget in the first place in terms of what it is that you're going to do. Another piece of that is to test and make sure that what you're putting your money in actually is getting you a return. So if you had a strategy, and I'll give you a, an example from one of our properties, where you were going to, um, let's say you, you thought, you know what, microwaves would be a really big hit. Let's add microwaves in all 300 units that we own. And it's going to cost us um, uh, $400 per unit to do that, to buy the microwave, to go install it, do a little bit of work uh, to the cabinets, and, and it'll be great. And we think we can get X amount of uh, incremental rent for it. You know, maybe we can get, uh, um, you know, $30 a month, which means we pretty well pay for it within the first year. So boy, that'd be a really nice uh, return if, if in fact that happens. So it, it may very well be the most cost-effective way to do that to simply say, great, let's go do all 300 units all at once. And you don't really know that you're going to get that number. You might have comps that tell you you're going to get it. A way to really be confident that you're going to get that kind of return is don't do 300, go do 10, right? Go do 10 of them. Maybe it costs you a few more dollars to do 10. It's only going to be a few dollars more per unit to do 10 than it would to do all 300. And then rent those and see what kind of feedback you get and what kind of uh, rent you can get for them. And then you can refine your model. By the way, you almost also will probably learn when you do that, that it actually doesn't cost $400 to install it. Maybe it only costs 300 because it's easier than everybody thought. Or more likely, it's actually, you know what? We found a problem. There's a, uh, you know, we need an electrician to do X or we had to, uh, you know, add an outlet or we had to change some venting or who knows what, right? There could be something that comes up and suddenly now it's $600 to do this. Well, if you just said, go do all 300 and suddenly you get a $200 uh, change order, wow, that's a big hit. You know, you just, you get, you just got $60,000 in capital you have to spend that you weren't planning on in the first place. And maybe you've got a better place to have put that 60,000. So 
being really mindful about you about the improvements, watching those dollars, um, testing, uh, doing a market test, uh, doing a, a few units so that you can perfect the model before you turn it loose on the entirety of your uh, of your asset. Those are all the things that we would do to optimize uh, the the world on the um, uh, on the capital side. Another that we do, and this would be available to those of you that are building your own smaller portfolios. It's certainly something that we do with inside our fund. It's not something that necessarily other sponsors are able to do because they don't have a structure like our fund does. And that is uh, to continually investigate where capital should be invested to get the best return. And what I mean by that is we own lots of assets inside the fund. And so if we have a property that we've budgeted $100,000 of capital to do X, and that's gonna get us a return of 20%, and another property has a project going and it was supposed to get 15%, but it's actually getting 30%, we might reprioritize some of those dollars from the 20 percent return project property to the other property not doesn't mean that we won't ultimately do all of that work but from a priority standpoint we do the higher return work first and as we do that higher return work we're able to generate higher returns which optimizes our our cash income that our uh, investors experience the reason capital is so critical is because it's the biggest lever it's it's the number that ultimately everything is compared back to so if you can move your capital by 5% or by 10%, you're gonna have a huge impact on what the experience is of the, uh, of the returns that you get. So, so those are the five levers. Um, I have a couple other thoughts though that we wanna share. And, and one of them is about the longer term nature of how you can optimize cash return. But before I do that, before we move off of levers, I wanna make sure that, uh, that we touch on a point that can easily be overlooked. And that is that levers work in two directions. So in the same way that debt leverage can increase your returns, right? So if you're 90% levered on a property and you make just a small improvement, right? If the property, uh, if you could sell the property for 10% more than what you bought it for, because you're 90% levered, you've just doubled your money. That's a 100% return because of this huge amount of leverage that you carry. Well, that also swings in the other direction, right? On the debt side. If the property went down in value by 10%, you're wiped out, your equity is completely gone. So um, high leverage is high risk, high reward kind of stuff because it moves in two directions. The levers I'm talking about here, right? The levers that can help you optimize cash return also move in opposite directions. So not only are these the items that you wanna look at to optimize, they're also the places you wanna play defense the most, that you want to secure, because if these moved against you, then they're gonna have the biggest negative impact. Another way to think about that is when you're doing your underwrite, just as we do on our acquisitions, these would be the items to be the most conservative on, so that you're leaving room should there be a movement 
that's negative, that's against you, that's unfavorable, uh, that you're leaving room to still be successful and positive cash flow and all the rest of that. Taxes, right? You could have a higher than planned assessment. And because of that, you're going to have a higher tax bill. You can generally know what the tax rate's going to be with a pretty high degree of accuracy. You might want to be conservative on that. We're always conservative in terms of what we believe the assessment's going to be. Our assessments generally come in, um, you know, quite a bit below, 10% or more below what we underwrote. Not because they're coming in low, it's because we're underwriting high. Um, likewise, for salaries and wages and management expenses, um, if if you have challenges elsewhere, the way you're going to answer those is with your team. And if your team has to spend extra time doing that work, you're going to have more expenses there and more management involvement. So that's an area to be conservative in. Uh, other income can be a great line item to grow. And you don't want to get carried away and say, all right, well, we're going to have 100% uh, of our units are going to have assigned parking and 100% are going to have covered parking and 100% are going to pay me, uh, you know, an extra 200 a month in pet rent. And, you know, each of those might be an appropriate assumption for some number of the units, but not for all of the units, right? So you want to be, again, conservative in terms of what you're looking at there. And then on the rent movement, right? Um, again, there might be um, a 15% delta between current rents and the market rents for improved units. We aren't going to underwrite a 15% movement. We'd underwrite maybe 10% or something like that. And we'd encourage you to give similar thought. Likewise, uh, with physical vacancy or concessions or bad debt, all of those, there should be a conservative element to them because as I said, while they can have a very positive impact when you uh, exceed plan because of this lever uh, this impact that each of these items has. It can also be a big negative impact in the opposite direction. And that, and that goes very true for capital, right? So if the capital plan that's put together is very tight and precise and down to the penny, this is exactly what we're going to spend, then the chance to overrun that is almost 100% in my mind. Uh, you're, there's just things you're going to run into that you're going to need to be prepared for. So building in contingencies, having reasonable numbers, being cautious about any capital that's deployed, really proving that out before you actually let it go, even though it's in your model, really making sure that it's something that you in fact want to expend and instead of deploying somewhere else, whether it's deploying to another asset as we might, or, um, or simply returning back to the investors or taking back yourself to do something else uh, with from, uh, from that standpoint. So the item I want to leave you with uh, is about how to do this over a long period of time. Um, and this is probably the most interesting lever to pull because if you employ this strategy, you can be really conservative on all the other items we've talked about. And you don't need to stress as much about them because when you play the long game, you're going to position yourself to be really successful. And the way to do that is to purchase these assets with the intention and the strategy of being long in multifamily. Now, by that, I don't mean that you're going to hold e each of these individual assets forever or even for 
15 years, or even 10 years. Our strategy is we purchase assets with an expectation that we'll hold them about five years. Over five years, we're gonna get some nice cash flow out of them. We're gonna get some really nice tax advantages. We're also gonna build up, by virtue of their increase in value, some equity, eventually having a decent amount of lazy equity that's not really doing anything. When those assets are sold at the end of five years and we purchase a new asset and we do it via a 1031, so we avoid the tax, at least in the short term, and I'm gonna go into that in a minute here in some detail, then we get a chance to buy a larger asset and it improves our performance. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that. And this is why this is probably the ultimate optimization tool in terms of optimizing cash income, as well as the other return uh, portions of the return profile. Let's say that we've got an investment where we put $2 million in, right? So the fund trots out, we buy something, and we, we put $2 million into it. When we sell that asset some number of years down the road, we get $3 million back, right? So we made 50%. Maybe that happened over the course of five years, maybe it was three years, whatever the time frame was, we got 50% back. So we're gonna do a 1031 and we're gonna take that $3 million and it's gonna go into a larger property, right? A property that's about 50% bigger than the property that we originally um, purchased. And so when that 3 million goes in, let's, and let's use some, some numbers here. If that 2 million on average generated about 8% a year over the hold period, um, which is roughly what we would target uh, inside the fund, um, you know, that's about $160,000 a year of cash flow. Well, that 3 million invested in a new property, again, we're gonna be looking for that same 8%, same conservative kind of plan. Well, that's $240,000 a year. But if you look at the 240 against the 2 million, because that's really what you're benchmarking against is that original investment, well, that's not 8%, that's 12%. And one of the reasons it's so high is we were able to use the entire million dollars. And the reason we used the entire million dollars is because we didn't have to pay the tax on the gain or the depreciation recapture tax at that point in time. We are able to defer those using a 1031. What that essentially means is the government gave us an interest-free loan, something in the amount of several hundred thousand dollars. Now you'd have to do the math for each individual deal to know what the number is, but let's just for discussion's sake, let's say that it turns out to be $400,000 in this scenario that I'm describing. $400,000 in tax exposure that would have to be accounted for somehow if you in fact just distributed these um, these dollars and didn't reinvest. Well, that $400,000 is itself being reinvested and it's gonna grow in value. 400 is gonna become 600 and then it's gonna become 800 and so on and so on. And it's also gonna be throwing off cash. $400,000 in cash is throwing off an extra $32,000 a year in cash flow in this, in this model that, um, that I'm using as an example. That's $32,000 in cash return that you simply would not have had um, otherwise, uh, which is, you know, that's a hundred and I'm trying to get this right in my head. That's 160 basis points of additional cash return on the original 2 million that you wouldn't have had any for any reason, simply because of the tax savings of the 1031. 
you add to that the ability to, to roll over the uh, additional gain, the lazy equity that I described, uh, and you get this boost in return. So you could even be really conservative and only shoot for a 6% cash return. And then you'd go through this process and that would become nine. And then you could go through it again and that becomes 13 or 15 or 16 and, and so on and so on and so on. And that is a wonderful way to not only build wealth, but to truly build and optimize your cash income over time. So for the first several years, it's gonna be a nice number uh, and, and something that can be enjoyed. But 10 years from now, it could be a really large number. And over that next 20 years, it could grow to be a very substantial number. And that's one of the beauties of investing in real estate, in particular in multifamily real estate, is that ability over time to really build a substantial portfolio that performs not only in terms of this income item we've talked about, but in terms of wealth creation and doing so in a space that's nice and secure. So I hope this has been of value to you all. Uh, again, if you haven't listened to part one, uh, go back and listen to uh, episode 22, which was last week's episode. So you can get the front half of this. Shoot me emails with questions. Would love to uh, hear your thoughts and answer questions about this for you individually. If, as you've listened to this, you think that what we do at Mara Polling might be a fit or that you'd like to at least learn more about it in terms of potentially looking at us being a part of your portfolio, I would be happy to have that conversation with you and get you the right materials um, uh, so that you can move beyond just some educational content in a podcast. Email me, pat at marapolling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And join us again next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Polling.